oh, maybe it was 10 or 15 years ago. It wasn't long after I first uh, became a pastor. And we were talking about um, pastors and teaching and the lack of quality among pastoral teaching. And she was going to a, another church by that time, and they were looking for a pastor. And she said, they all get up there and preach without notes. And she made a very interesting observation. She said, I don't want to hear a pastor who can preach without notes. Because that means that all he's going to teach me is what he can remember. And that certainly isn't going to be enough content in that hour for those of us to grow by. I thought, well, that's a very interesting observation and a lot of pastors need to pay attention to that. So since then, I haven't worried too much about whether I have notes or not. I mean, in the sense that I want them. When I was in seminary, we were taught not to have notes. You need to remember everything and boil it down to three points in a poem and hope you can remember the poem. Well, having said that and done that, for those of you who were not here for prayer meeting, you need to get into fellowship so you can study. The rest of you hopefully haven't gotten out of fellowship in the last five minutes. So let's start with a word of prayer an opportunity to confess our sins if need be. Father, we do thank you for the wonderful privilege we have together as a body of believers to look into your word. This word that you have given to us over a period of 2,000 years through so many different men of so many different personalities to teach us everything we need to know about living the spiritual life. In fact, everything we need to know about living, uh, all the information we need to know about living in, in this world that you have created. And Father, we pray that as we look at this passage this evening, as we understand the dynamics that go on in our own lives, we pray that you would help us to apply these principles to our own spiritual life, that we may be strengthened by it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 1. We're continuing our study in the second half of the introduction. James chapter 1, we're down to verse 14. James 1, 14. We need to take a moment to orient ourselves. It's always important to know where we are in a passage. Sometimes we start studying... Uh, doctrines within a passage or within a verse that help us understand all that is being said in that verse, and we start narrowing our focus down so much till it's rather tight, and we're not sure exactly what the overall context is anymore. And sometimes when we back up a little bit or go to the next verse, we say, well, how did we get that? And I'm really not sure I understand everything that's going on in this passage. The first 18 verses of this chapter forms the introduction to James. The first verse is the salutation, where we find that it's James addressed to uh, the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. So he's primarily focusing on Jewish believers. He wrote at a very early period, and the church probably uh, early 40s, probably within 10 years of the resurrection. From verse 2 down through verse 11, the subject is the believer's proper attitude toward testing. 
And that is that follows the first commandment, first mandate in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So those, those ten verses from 2 through 11 are verses which cover the, our, the believer's attitude toward testing. Then there's a shift in verse 12. In verse 12 through 18 focuses on the believer's attitude toward God in the midst of testing. Our attitude toward God in the midst of testing. Verse 12 brings us back to the theme of joy in the midst of testing. Blessed or happy is the man who perseveres under testing. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And that introduces us to this important idea of loving God. That we are to love the Lord and not every believer loves the Lord. A lot of people talk about it, a lot of people emote about it, but very few believers truly reach a point in their spiritual growth where they develop any significant love for God. Because love, love for anybody, personal love for anybody, demands a certain amount of knowledge and a certain amount of time spent with that individual. And very few believers spend a whole lot of time talking with the Lord or understanding the Lord or learning anything about the Lord, which comes from a consistent study of the Word. So we're brought back to that theme of, an inter- of, of happiness in the midst of trials and loving the Lord in verse 12. Then James, that's the positive side. Then James, James shifts to the negative side with a prohibition or warning in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tested. And there we saw that we come back to this word perasmas in the Greek, which has two meanings, a broad meaning in the sense of testing, the objective test, sort of like the person who is out hunting and puts bait into a trap. That's a good analogy which we'll see developed in the next verses. It's, it's objective. But temptation has the idea of this inner inclination, this inner attraction to that outer bait. So it's, the testing is, has an objective sense and then it has a subjective sense as temptation. Parasmos is spelled P-E-I-R-A-S-M-O-S. Testing or temptation. And James shifts the focus in verse 13 to the idea of temptation. Why? What is he thinking about here? He's thinking about the fact that as you go through life and you're going down your path, you hit a test. We hit them a thousand times every day. A test in its simplest definition is any opportunity that presents itself for us to make a choice between applying doctrine or living in the power of the sin nature, one or the other. They can be very minor tests which have to do with with uh, just day-to-day events that are very simple, attitude, what we think, what we say, what we do, to major crises in our lives that may involve the death of a loved one, the loss of a job, the loss of our home, uh, whatever it may be, something major. And that gives us the opportunity to either go positive or negative, or negative to Bible doctrine, to apply doctrine uh, that's stored up in our soul. The, temp- the temptation comes... When we go through a major crisis at this point, we want to blame God. 
it's God's fault. And as we fail and as we go negative to doctrine and, and more and more problems are generated because of divine discipline and the law of volitional responsibility, we want to blame God and put the blame on Him. And that's what James is warning about in the latter ha- in the first half of verse 13. Let no one say when he is, is tested or tempted, I am being tempted by God. Now we have seen, we reviewed last week the doctrine of suffering and the doctrine of adversity and stress. And we saw that God provided, has provided us with a, a defensive a strategy, a soul fortress that protects us in the midst of adversity. And I've redone the overhead and we're attacked by tests of prosperity and adversity. And God has provided for us ten spiritual skills or stress busters. Confession, 1 John 1, 9, the power of the filling of the Holy Spirit who enables us to understand doctrine and recall doctrine and utilize doctrine in the midst of trials. Faith rest drill, mixing the promises of God with faith. Grace orientation, doctrinal orientation. And these are basic, these are fundamental skills, spiritual skills that we must develop and utilize on a day-to-day basis. That develops that, that, that frequency. Just like when, uh, when you're learning something new, for example, you're learning piano or you're learning voice or you're learning um, some new technique. You have to do it over and over and over again so it becomes ingrained in your habit pattern. And that's what you do as a new believer, as a young believer. And that provides you with that ability to grow beyond spiritual infancy to spiritual adolescence. Then you begin to develop a personal sense of your eternal destiny. You realize you are adopted into the family of God. You are a son of God, a huios of God in the Greek. We'll be studying that whole concept in Galatians in the next few weeks. You have that personal sense of your eternal destiny and you begin to make decisions today based on who you are and where you're going in eternity. Then we come to the love triplex. Personal love for God the Father, unconditional love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. And that then develops inner happiness, which is the theme of James. How to have inner happiness in the midst of trials and testing. Now, what is the basis for this this fortress? There are a number of passages in the Psalms that relate to us this idea. Psalm 18.2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Think about the different metaphors that David uses in that verse to express this protection that God gives us. He's our rock, our fortress, our deliverer, a shield, and a stronghold. Psalm 28.7 The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and I am helped. Therefore my heart exalts and with my song I shall thank Him. There we see three important elements. A recognition that God is the protection in the midst of trials and testing and that is implemented through trusting in Him. The faith rest drill is the glue that holds all of these stress busters together. My heart trusts in Him. I am helped. What's the result? Because I trust in Him, then my heart exalts. Then there's joy. That's that same theme that James is emphasizing. And the result of that is praise and personal thanksgiving and gratitude. Gratitude is always a gauge 
for how mature we are as a believer. We're to give thanks for all things and in all things. And the level to which we respond to even crises and adversities with, with uh, gratitude is an indication of the maturity of our spiritual life. Psalm 71.3 Be thou to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come. Thou hast given commandment to save me for thou art my rock and my fortress. Once again, a reference to our soul fortress. Psalm 91.2 I will say to the Lord my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And Psalm 144.2 My loving kindness and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. So we see that God is our source of strength, our source of refuge. He is the one who takes care of us. Now, in our exegesis of this verse, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God. Now, this is the typical response of the arrogant believer. Now, there are three things that take place when a believer is operating in arrogance And these are called the three arrogant skills. They start with self-absorption. Moves from self-absorption to self-deception. Excuse me, to self-justification. And then it moves from self-justification to Self-deception. And then it cycles again. And, and the longer we stay under the control of sin nature, the more arrogance dominates our soul, the, more, the, the deeper we plunge into this cycle of the three arrogant skills. In self-absorption, you put yourself at the center of your world. Everything revolves around you. And when, whenever anything happens, you always, the instant reaction is how it affects you. Everything is viewed in terms of what you like and what you dislike. The person who is self-absorbed is very, very selfish. Normally, the more self-absorbed you are, the less you're going to realize it. That leads to self-justification. In self-justification, the self-absorbed person has convinced themselves of their own rectitude. It's never your fault. It's never your responsibility. The longer this continues, the more you become divorced from reality. You become more and more subjective. You view everything through the distorted eyeglasses of arrogance and self-absorption, which means that you become more and more blinded to the way things really are. The person who's operating in arrogance and has moved into self-justification no longer sees life the way it is. They can't see themselves the way they are. They no longer have objectivity. We, We went through John three on Sunday morning, how the person in darkness loves the darkness and hates the light. The person who's operating on the arrogant skills and in arrogance constantly looks at things from his own viewpoint. He loses objectivity. Objectivity comes only through the Word of God, only through Bible doctrine in the soul are we enabled to break out of the pattern of the arrogant skills and to look at our lives objectively through the, uh, <clears throat> through the lens of the Word of God. We go from self-absorption to self-justification and then to self-deception, which is a denial of our own culpability and failures. This is a person in 1 John 1, 1.8 who denies that they are a sinner. It's 
the loss of all objectivity and the inability to honestly face your own life, your own decisions, and to accept your own failures and then do what is necessary to correct the problem. Self-deception is usually characterized by moral cowardice, an unwillingness and an inability to do what is right and make the right decisions. It takes a lot of courage to be honest with ourselves. It takes a lot of courage to let the Word of God, to hold it up, as we'll see James talk about later on in, in this chapter, that the Word of God is like a mirror, and we hold it up to see what we're really like. And sometimes that's very unpleasant, but we have to be honest with that. And the more we're in arrogance, the more we're in self-deception, and the more difficult it is, the more unwilling we are to be honest with ourselves and to accept responsibility for our own lives. Now, verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. That's the typical response of the person operating on the arrogant skills. And then we, we're given an explanation. Why is this true? Introduced by the particle gar, for, G-A-R, for always introduces or Gar always introduces an explanation for something that has just been said. So we're going to understand why you're not supposed to blame God. So James, this shifts into another subject where James gives us the reasons why temptation does not come from God. And the first reason is, here in the second part of the verse, that God is not tempted, nor does he tempt evil. But God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. The word here for, for temptation, God cannot be tempted, is parazomai, which is a present passive indicative, which means the subject receives the action of the verb. So we have parazomai, which is the verb form, of the noun perosmos, P-E-I-R-A-Z-O-M-A-I. It's a present which is durative action. This is always true about God. It is expressing a gnomic principle about God. Gnomic is a grammatical term which expresses something that is always true. It's a universal principle. It's a, it's a gnomic present. It's passive voice. Passive means... It receives the action. God never receives the action of temptation because God is not temptable. In His character, God is perfect righteousness and absolute justice. Together, this makes up the holiness of God. Because God is holy and absolute perfection, there is nothing within God that is attracted to evil. There is no affinity between God and evil. Evil is absolutely abhorrent to God. Evil, remember, evil includes more than just sin. Evil not only includes what we tend to refer to as sin, but it also refers to human good. All of man's efforts to try to impress God with his own morality and his own goodness doesn't find any favor with God. God is just as abhorred by by human good as sin because human good is man trying to impress God with his own efforts and scripture tells us that all our unrighteousness or all our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God so God is not God is not only not only rejects all sin 
but he rejects all human good. And together this is lumped into the category of evil. God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Now this raises a question in the minds of a lot of people. When we read that God does not tempt anyone, or God is not temptable, the first question that comes up is, what about Christ? What about the Lord Jesus Christ? Wasn't he tempted? Isn't that what Scripture says? Hebrews 4.15 states, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So isn't this a contradiction in the Bible between Hebrews 4, which says Jesus was tempted, and uh, James 1.13? No. And why not? Well, first of all, we have to remember that there are two categories of temptation. There's the objective temptation and the subjective temptation, which is the attraction to evil. There is no, no way that God, who is plus R, and Jesus Christ, who in his deity was plus R, and in his humanity had no sin nature. That there was nothing in Jesus Christ that had any affinity or attraction with sin. This is called the doctrine of the impeccability of Jesus Christ. Let me write this word up here on the board for you. Impeccability. It's from the Latin word verb, peccare meaning to sin. With the negative I-M in front of it, it means not able to sin. So let's review the doctrine of the impeccability of Christ. Point number one. Impeccability means not liable to sin. Not liable to sin. Impeccability is that doctrine related to the person of Jesus Christ which recognizes that during the entire course of the Lord's life on the earth, during the Incarnation, and forever, our Lord Jesus Christ did not sin, though He was tempted in His humanities and the temptations were real. Jesus Christ has a human body, had a human soul, had a human spirit. Use another circle here. Human spirit. But he was minus a sin nature. He had no sin nature. He was created just as Adam was created. He was born spiritually, physically alive and spiritually alive just as Adam was created physically alive and spiritually alive. Adam was created perfect. He had plus R. He was created in the image and likeness of God. In the same way, Jesus Christ had plus R in his humanity. He is called the second Adam. Nowhere in his life, at no time, did he ever sin. That brings us to point two. Point two. The first Adam was temptable... These are important words, temptable and peccable. Temptable means that you were able, he was able to be tempted, and peccable means that he was able for him to sin. In the Garden of Eden, Adam was temptable. Of course, when he was tempted, objectively, he failed. 
He was capable of sinning through the use of his own volition in response to the temptation. So what happens in the garden is here's the tree. The tree's got the fruit on it. And Adam has a volitional issue. Positive volition, I don't eat the fruit. Negative, I do eat the fruit. God had warned him that the moment he ate, he would die instantly. And we have studied that that instant death was spiritual death. The Greek, I mean the Hebrew of Genesis 2.17 uses a very important construction. It uses a finite verb in the Cal perfect plus an infinitive absolute. And whenever that construction is used, and I've investigated a number of these usages, that's how you, de- that's how you come up with this stuff. That's how you determine word meanings. You don't just go to a dictionary and the dictionary tells you this is what this means and this is what this grammatical function means. What you do is you investigate every time you can where you find this kind of a grammatical uh, structure in the original language and you see how it's translated and how it can be translated and you see the various nuances. So I've gone through almost all of Genesis and many other passages in the Old Testament where this construction, infinitive absolute plus a cow uh, perfect is used, and it always is used to intensify the idea, to add the idea of certainty in any statement. And very rarely can it ever be translated. I've never found one instance where it makes sense to translate it with a participle in the sense of dying, you will die, process and then conclusion. You never have that. It always has this intensity and the uh, this sense of... Um, Intensity and certainty. And so what we have in Genesis 2.17 is the absolute certainty that the moment that Adam was to eat, he would die. And he did. He died spiritually. And the consequence of that, the result of spiritual death, was ultimate physical death. So spiritual death eventually led to physical death. Well, when he was in the garden, and he before he sinned, he, before he ate of the fruit, he did not have a sin nature. So there is nothing inside of either Adam and Eve that has this internal propensity and attraction to sin. All they have is the objective bait on the tree. And then Satan in the form of a serpent coming and enticing them with that. But there's no internal draw. There's no internal enticement. So Adam, the first Adam is temptable and peccable. He had no sin nature. In fact, he originated the sin nature, and there was only one way that Adam could sin, and that was by eating the fruit on the tree. But there's nothing inside him that draws him to sin. Not like the temptation that you and I have. We have a sin nature that has a proclivity to sin. Too much of a proclivity, we might say. But we, we are drawn easily to temptations. In the same way, point number three... Jesus Christ, the last Adam, is in hypostatic union. Now remember, hypostatic union means that you have undiminished deity and true humanity united together in one person. Now in his deity, Jesus Christ is not temptable and he is not peccable. In his deity, he cannot be tempted, he cannot sin. However, in his humanity, he is temptable and he is peccable. Now, theologians have used two different phrases 
to dis- discuss this historically. The first phrase in the Latin is non, I can't even write tonight, non posse peccare. Not able, this is where the Latin, where we get our word possible, able, not able to sin. The other phrase is posse non peccare. And this means able not to sin. And there's a distinction between the two. In his deity, Jesus Christ was non posse peccare. He was not able to sin. But in his humanity, he was able not to sin. What enabled Jesus Christ not to be able to sin is the unique spiritual life which he pioneered at the first advent, which is the spiritual life that he bequeathed to us in the church age and is the unique spiritual life of the church age. So as far as point three is concerned, Jesus Christ, undiminished deity and true humanity, was not temptable or peccable in his deity, but in his humanity, just like the humanity of Adam, he is temptable and peccable. But this is not an internal temptation like we experience. This is the external or objective temptation that is parallel to Adam's temptation. Point number four. Because of the virgin pregnancy, virgin pregnancy and the virgin birth, Jesus Christ did not inherit a sin nature. When he emerged from the womb and his soul was imputed to the physical body, because there was no genetically formed sin nature to inherit from the man, there was no imputation of Adam's original sin. Therefore, Jesus Christ was born minus a sin nature. There's no sin nature. He is born perfect, physically alive and spiritually alive. Point number five, instead of imputing Adam's original sin, God the Father provided a special gift for the Lord Jesus Christ. From birth, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. The only person in human history to be filled with the Holy Spirit because he's perfect from birth. Now, some of you may say, well, what about John the Baptist? Well, we have a real problem with the John the Baptist passage, and I don't want to go into all the details on that right now. But if you read in Luke chapter 1, and it says that John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit from birth. Well, I think this little phrase that we find in the Greek, I've never been able to fully substantiate this, it's ek koilea, which literally is uh, from the womb, but it's an idiom for from birth. I think just because of the Luke passage with John has to refer to from infancy at some time, or, or early childhood. The problem is that John the Baptist is born with a sin nature. That means he has to be regenerate before he can receive the Holy Spirit. If he's given the Holy Spirit from birth, then he's the only person in human history who is given the Holy Spirit, and the implication is saved, apart from any act of their own volition. 
And that's a major theological problem. So the birth passages that relate to John the Baptist in Luke 1 are, are very problematical there. And I think that just from the indication there and from the theology behind it, Echoilea has to be idiomatic for even from just an early age. Uh, in, incidentally, most, most translations translated from the womb, which indicates that there's full human life in the womb, but the NIV correctly translates it as an idiom and does translate that from birth as it does most of the Old Testament passages that way. But we're getting away from our subject here. Point number five, instead of imputing Adam's original sin, God the Father provided the Lord Jesus Christ with a special gift, which is the filling of the Holy Spirit from birth. He's filled with God the Holy Spirit throughout his entire life, and he has the entire array minus confession, 1 John 1, 9. He has the entire array of problem-solving devices. Okay, really he has eight of them. He doesn't have occupation with Christ. He has, uh, and he doesn't have confession. He has the other eight, and this provided a perfect soul fortress for the Lord Jesus Christ to deal with every temptation that would come along. And this is why he begins his, one reason why he begins his ministry right after the baptism with John the Baptist. That's the first thing. It's a public presentation of the Messiah at the baptism. Then the next thing that happens is what? Matthew 4, 1. The, the Holy Spirit leads the Lord Jesus Christ into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and then he has three temptations by Satan. These are going to prove that he is who he claims to be, that he is impeccable because he withstands this tremendous pressure and temptation directly from Satan. In contrast to Adam who failed with the first temptation from Satan, Jesus Christ goes through three temptations and he comes out a success. He is victorious and this establishes his position as Messiah in preparation for his public ministry. Then he comes back to John the Baptist in John, the latter part of John 1 and starts to collect his disciples around him. But it is this unique spiritual life that he has that he pioneers for us Based on the filling of the Holy Spirit, he has this soul fortress that enables him to resist all temptation and thus to be victorious in his spiritual life and never yield to temptation or sin. Point number six, the conclusion. Jesus was born true humanity just as Adam was true humanity. And Jesus faced much more severe testing and temptation than Adam ever did yet without sin, thus demonstrating for us the power of God the Holy Spirit and the soul fortress which enables us to withstand temptation and to not give in to the sin nature. So the first question, we were in verse 13, God cannot be tempted by evil, and the first question people usually ask is, well, what about Jesus? And the answer to that is understanding the doctrine of impeccability and understanding the concept of objective testing that the parallel goes back to Adam. Jesus is going to have victory where Adam failed. It's the first Adam, last Adam scenario. You must understand that. It's, it's, that's even more important than having him go through the kind of uh, subjective temptation that we go through. God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. Verse 14, but 
if God is not the source of temptation, the ultimate source of temptation, where does it come from? Verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now, James uses a lot of verbs here that provide the imagery of birth. We'll look at that as we go through here. Let each one, male or female, each one is the Greek pronoun, demonstrative noun, hekastos. H-E-K-A-S-T-O-S and refers to each individual. This is an individual issue. Every person is different. Temptation is personal and individual. What tempts one person may not tempt another person. What's One person may, may like sweets. Another person may like something else. Whatever it may be, we are all driven by our lust patterns and what appeals to one person does not appeal to another. Each one is tempted and carried away when enticed by his own lust. Now, this is a diagram of the sin nature. What I've placed in the middle of the sin nature is the lust patterns because the lust patterns are the motivation, the driver. This is the engine in the sin nature of all types of lust, approbation lust, power lust, materialism lust, money lust, revenge lust, sexual lust, social lust, chemical lust, crusader lust, inordinate ambition and inordinate competition, and pleasure lust. I'm sure that if we put our heads together, we might come up with a few more kinds of lust. But some people are very attracted by approbation lust. Sometimes you find that in a church. People are there because they're, they're going to ha- find approval from other people, and they're looking for somebody who's going to pat them on the back and make them feel good because they've been coming to church. Sometimes you find a lot of people at church who are into power lust. They like to get on to deacon boards and elder boards and, and whatever it may be in order to have that power over people and be in a position of, of authority. They're usually attracted to the rather large churches that don't teach very much doctrine. But every now and then you'll find people in doctrinal churches who, uh, who get on boards and have a real problem with power lust. There's money lust, greed. Money is not the source of all evil. The love of money is the source of all evil. That's what Scripture teaches. Money lust, revenge lust, people who get offended and they just think about how they're going to get back at that person who hurt them and they they plot it in their minds and they think it out and they get a lot of pleasure from thinking through how how they're going to make somebody hurt because of how they, they rejected them. Sexual lust, social lust, the desire for social prestige or position. Chemical lust, the desire for, for drugs. Uh, alcohol, uh, crusader lust. They're right and they want everybody else to agree with them, so they're going to go out and try to make everybody agree with them and go on a crusade in order to get everybody to do things the way they think it ought to be done. Inordinate ambition and competition, where they put a job or career or education or whatever it may be, uh, sports, uh, just, there's nothing wrong with ambition, there's nothing wrong with count competition, but when it takes over, and it dominates everything else in life, then you've got a problem. And pleasure lust. These are the various lusts in the soul. Each one has a different one. So somebody who has a real problem with sexual lust uh, is going to look over here at the person who has a, a problem with money lust and say, well, why can't you just have the right attitude about money? 
And then this person over here is into power lust, and they're at the local church, and they're on the deacon board, and they don't have any problem with sexual lust. They're going to have a tendency to be very judgmental of the person who has a weakness in the realm of sexual lust. And the trouble is that we can't judge one another because every one of us is different, and we're going to grow at different rates, and we're going to have different lust patterns in different areas of weakness. So we have to... uh, let the Lord deal with each one of us on an individual basis. But here in this verse, we, it begins, each one is tempted. Each one emphasizes the individuality of temptation, the testing that comes along. There are three sources of temptation. Three sources, and I've never gone over this in much detail, but we'll just hit the highlights right here. The first major enemy that the Christian has is Satan. Satan is the title. It's a, it's from the Hebrew word shatan, which is a term for a legal term for an accuser in a courtroom. His original name was Lucifer, son of the morning. And Lucifer was the highest of all of the angels God created before, uh, before he created man. Lucifer had the highest position. He was the most brilliant and most powerful of all the angels. And he was overcome by his own importance. And he yielded to arrogance. And he wanted to be just like God. Satan is the avowed enemy of each and every believer, although Satan does not personally attack every believer. Remember, Satan is finite. He's a finite creature. He is not omnipresent. He is not omniscient. And he is not omnipotent. Very rarely does Satan ever personally attack anyone. He did in, in the Old Testament in Job. But very rarely does he personally go after anybody. Usually... We, when, when people say Satan is after me, what they ought to be thinking is he's after them, yes, but in terms of the thought system, human viewpoint, or cosmic thinking. The only way the believer is designed to deal with Satan or his agents, the demons, is defensively. Defensively. I want to emphasize this because today we live in an era when people are out there trying to engage Satan in offensive action. You find in a lot of churches every week they're trying to stomp out the devil and they're trying to kick the devil out of their church and they're trying to exercise demons and all of this other activity which is totally contrary to what the Word of God says. Over and over again, in fact, there's three major passages. Ephesians 6, the famous passage on spiritual warfare. 1 Peter 5 and James 4. The command over and over again is stand firm... One form of the verb is stand firm. Another form of the verb is resist. The Greek has a basic, the basic word is histeme. H-I-S-T-E-M-I. And then a compound, anthistemi. And they mean to take a stand against and they are defensive. It does not mean charge and attack the devil. It means to take your stand. In fact, it's the same word the same Greek word that the Old Testament Hebrew word was translated into when the, the Amalekites were attacking the Israelites after they had left Egypt. And Moses and Joshua are standing up on the hillside and, and Moses says to the Israelites, Stand still and see the deliverance of the Lord. That's the issue. You take a stand. The believer is to take a defensive posture with regard to Satan and, the, and let the Lord handle the issue offensively. We don't know half of what's going on in the spiritual realm. We don't probably know 2% of what's going on 
in the spiritual realm. We are to take our stand defensively and let the Lord handle the issue, whatever that is. The first enemy is Satan. The second enemy, outside enemy, outside the believer, is the cosmic system. That's his thought system. The cosmic system devised by Satan to give a rationale for temptation. The cosmic system is defined as Satan's orderly, cohesive, and multifaceted system of thinking, which includes a purpose, policy, and structure of authority designed to subvert the human race and gain control over the world he now rules. Notice he doesn't have control now. Satan's not in control. He is desperately trying to, um, to achieve control. He does this through encouraging human arrogance, which is cosmic one, and sponsoring human antagonism to God, which is cosmic two. The cosmic system is a classroom for communicating Satan's false doctrine. So the first external enemy that we have is Satan. The second is the cosmic system. And then the internal enemy that we have is the sin nature. The sin nature is the enemy that dwells within. It is also called the flesh. Now each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now the word that is translated carried away is the temporal participle of the Greek word ex elko. E-X-E-L-K-O. And it means to drag away, to draw away. It's sometimes used of animals pulling or dragging a cart. In one example, it's used of a boat dragging another boat. It means to be drawn or pulled away. Each one is tempted when he is carried away or enticed by what? By his own lust. So there is some sort of external temptation. External temptation comes from Satan or the world system. And then there's something inside us that is enticed or drawn to that. We see the outside trap and something inside of us wants to take the bait. We're enticed, tempted when he's carried away and then enticed by his own lust. And this is the Greek word uh, from the Greek word deladzo, which means to entice. And it's used of baiting a hook or used of catching a fish by bait or hunting with snares. So here we see this image of the trap, the trap that is set with the external bait that attracts us to sin. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then we come to verse 15, which uses the birth analogy. Thus, when lust has conceived. So what we have is a period of time. Notice the whole verse. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. It starts with lust and it ends with sin. Well, really, it starts here. Let's do it this way. It starts with a temptation, an external temptation. Then it has an internal attraction and desire which is called lust at this point. But it's still not sin. What has to happen before it culminates in sin? You have to have the volition engaged. You see, the source of temptation is your sin nature. But the source of sin is your volition. So you can lust. You can have a particular opportunity and you can say, I would like to do that and say, no, I'm not, I'm going to apply the word. And at that point, you've exercised positive volition, and lust does not conceive and give birth to sin. But you can have that desire, and you can say, 
Oh, I just want to think about this for a while and enjoy the thought of revenge in my mind for just a minute, how nice it would be for that person to suffer. And at that point, you've gone negative to doctrine and lust has conceived and it's given birth to sin. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished or brought to completion, it brings forth death. Here's the final result, is death. It's very important here to understand what James is talking about is death. This is what we call, what is called carnal death. It is not spiritual death. The Bible talks about several different kinds of death. We need to understand which kind of death this is, so let's review the doctrine of death. First of all, there is physical death. This is the separation of the soul, the immaterial part from the material part, separation of the soul from the body. Secondly, we have spiritual death. Spiritual death is the inability to have a relationship with God, separation of the human spirit from the body. So spiritual death is no relationship with God. Ephesians 2.1 Romans 5.12 Third, there is the second death. The second death are the eternal death which is, or the eternal death which is in, in the lake of fire, Revelation 20.12-15. through 15. Fourth, there is positional death. This relates to the uh, believer who at the point of salvation is identified with the death and burial of of the death of Jesus Christ. We are co-crucified with Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And Romans chapter 6 deal with the subject of positional death, identification with Christ in His death on the cross. Fifth, there is sexual death. Sexual death is the inability to function sexually. This happened with Abraham and Sarah and why the birth of Isaac was a miracle. Sixth, there is operational death. Operational death in the spiritual life. Operational death means that you're not under the power of the Holy Spirit, but you're under the power of the sin nature. This is what happens here in chapter in, in verse 15. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. What happens? At the point of salvation, you're entered into union with Christ in the top circle which is our eternal relationship with the Lord. We also have a temporal relationship with the Lord. The bottom circle describes the filling of the Holy Spirit. When we sin, when we exercise negative volition, and we sin, yield to lust, and and our volition accedes to it, then we are out of fellowship, and we are out here in carnality. In carnality, or we are under the control of the sin nature, and under control of the sin nature... We are operationally dead. We cannot produce anything of spiritual value. It's all going to be wood, hay, and stubble. No matter how moral we are, no matter how good we are, no matter how religious we are, no matter how many notes we take in our notebook, we're still operationally dead. This is what happens when you let stress into the soul. See, what happens is, to bring it back to the whole subject, you have a test. That that test is any opportunity to apply or reject Bible doctrine. So you go negative to doctrine. The result is then that you are out of fellowship. You are going to convert outside adversity into the internal uh, stress in the soul. 
Sin nature controls the soul, and you will continue in a cycle of, de- of depravity where you will be dominated by the arrogant skills. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. This is operational death and the inability to function in the spiritual life. Now, why is this important? To understand that, that James' use of death here, we see right away this is not spiritual death. He's talking about what happens to people who were spiritually dead, but he's talking to believers who are now spiritually alive. He's not talking about losing salvation. Death here is operational death. Now, this will become important when we get over to chapter 2, verse 17, when it says, Even so faith, if it has no works, that is, application of doctrine in the midst of a trial, is dead. doesn't mean they're not a believer. That's the big controversy we'll get into in James chapter 2. Faith, with, uh, where, where James raises the question, What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? And everybody wants to take that as phase one salvation at the cross. What we're going to see is James is not talking about phase one salvation because he's writing to believers. So he's not talking about spiritual death there. He's talking about operational death. And he introduces that subject right here in verse 15. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So the result is that when we encounter a test, we have two options. We can, option number one is to be positive and apply doctrine and use the stress busters to solve the problem. The result of that is life. Spiritual life, the abundance of life. Jesus promised, Jesus said, I came not like a thief to destroy, but I gave to give life and to give it abundantly. So there's the path of life. If we take negative volition and we let the sin nature dominate, the result of that is spiritual or not spiritual death, but operational death in the spiritual life where we no longer function uh, spiritually under the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and everything we produce is wood, hay, and stubble and has no consequence for eternity. Then James comes to his next command in verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And there we're told once again, that he's talking to believers and they're not supposed to be deceived. We're not supposed to be deceived at the point of temptation into thinking it comes from God. Why? Because God is quite different from that and we'll look at what he says positively about God in verse 17 next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to look at your word in this issue of temptation and understand the pathology of temptation and how our sin nature betrays us, how it is enticed and attracted by the outside uh, baiting of temptation and how we yield so easily to it, but the result of that is death, operational death where we no longer are living the spiritual life, we're no longer under the power of the Holy Spirit, but under the power of the sin nature. Father, we pray that as we go through tests each day, we may think more consciously of what is going on spiritually, that we may be more aware of our volitional decisions at each point to decide to uh, not give in to our sin nature and the sin that so easily besets us, but to apply the doctrine that we are learning to that particular issue that we may advance in our spiritual life rather than be retarded in our spiritual life. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.